I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, fellow music nerds. Welcome back to Music Makers and Soul Shakers. I'm your host, Steve Dawson, coming to you from the Hen House Studio in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm a guitarist, songwriter, and producer originally from Vancouver, Canada. I love all aspects of making records. So I thought I'd make a podcast and bring in a slew of folks who've also made records in one way or another and yak about it with them. Each month, I'll be bringing you an in-depth conversation with a new guest. It may be a musician, a songwriter, a producer, or an engineer, but each of these people will have a fascinating story to tell about their lives and their involvement in the process of being a music maker and or a soul shaker. Thanks for joining me, and feel free to reach out to me through the podcast website at www.stevedawson.ca. And now, here's another episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Hey there, music nerds. Welcome back, and thanks for joining me here on Season 3, the ongoing Season 3 of the podcast. I hope you've had a chance to keep up with all the latest episodes, and if not, be sure to peruse the list of recent shows and go have a listen to any that you've missed. My guest this month is the incredible producer and musician and the man of the hour around Nashville these days, Mr. Dave Cobb. All episodes of this podcast are brought to you from the Hen House Studio, just south of Nashville, Tennessee. It's my own place where I work recording and producing for bands and solo artists from all over the world. If you're in need of a recording or mixing facility or some tracks for your next project, feel free to check it out at thehenhousestudio.com, and you're always welcome to drop me a line about working together on your music, or if you'd like to comment on the podcast, feel free to reach out and contact me at steve at thehenhousestudio.com. And now on to this month's episode where I bring you my conversation with the incredible musician, producer, and engineer, Mr. Dave Cobb. Dave is very well known to a lot of you, I'm sure, as the producer behind such huge smash hits for people or artists like Chris Stapleton, Jason Isbell, the latest record for Brandy Carlile, which cleaned up at the Grammys a few weeks ago, John Prine, Sturgill Simpson, Shooter Jennings, the list goes on and on. He's doing the, the cream of the crop of all the Americana artists these days. If it's coming out of Nashville and it's not cheesy and overdone and overproduced and rockin' and organic, it's probably coming from the hands of Dave Cobb. So I'd like to just thank my friend Mark Rubel at the Blackbird Academy for uh, introducing me to Dave and, and helping me to set this interview up. Dave was really generous, and he's in the middle of an epic tour with Chris Stapleton. He's playing guitar in Chris's band right now, which is pretty cool, and he was just 
in back in Nashville very uh, briefly and invited me to come to his studio, which is the studio that was formerly known as, or I guess it's still known as RCA Studio A. It is gigantic, and it was so awesome to be there. Uh, it's the studio that um, Chet Atkins built in about 1965, and it is gigantic, and it's still basically original. Ben Folds has run the place more or less for the last 13 or 14 years or something. There was a lot of drama to do with the place about uh, four years ago because uh, Ben was getting kicked out so they could tear it down. And uh, there was a lot of uproar because Nashville was sort of in transition and still is, but people were unsure what to do with these historic buildings. And so there was a lot of uproar, I guess is the right word for it, to try and save some of these historic buildings that maybe, you know, financially it makes way more sense for that area to be filled with condos. But believe me, I come from Vancouver, and when you fill a city up full of condos, it's kind of lame. So if you've got a studio that's gigantic and awesome, and Chet Atkins built it in 1965, you keep that. You keep it up, I tell you. Anyway, they were about to tear it down, and this amazing guy swooped in at the last second. Uh, I can't remember his name. I even asked Dave, and Dave told me, and I've forgotten again. Uh, you'll hear it in the episode, but he came in, bought the studio out from the cheesy condo developers and saved it. And one thing led to another and Dave has been working out of there for the last few years. So uh, I went, dropped in on him there and he, uh, we spent an hour together speaking about a bunch of stuff to do with his projects and his techniques and some of his history. And then he ran off to the airport to join his tour again. And you will be hearing that conversation in just a couple minutes. All right, now we need to take care of just a little bit of business before we get going. I want to tell you how you can get behind the show and support it. There's a bunch of ways to do it. Go to iTunes, subscribe, leave a comment, a good comment preferably, and spread the word. Tell all your friends. Uh, you can also financially support the podcast with a one-time donation, which is great, or by contributing monthly through our Patreon site. All that information is on my website at stevedawson.ca. You go to the podcast page, and right at the top are the two ways to contribute to the show. So if you want to consider doing that, that's a big help. Uh, also, this year we have t-shirts and maybe some other swag a little bit later as the season progresses. That's also at the same website, stevedawson.ca, podcast page. It's all right there at the top. Any of those ways that you feel inclined to help out the show would be greatly appreciated. And lastly, a word from this week's sponsors, Union, Tube, and Transistor. They have some new products coming down the line. First of all, they're doing a killer new guitar signal splitter called the GBX95. It allows you to split your guitar to up to 6 amps plus a DI, which is actually way harder to do than it should be. Very handy for recording multiple guitar amps. Next, they're about to release their 343 guitar amp. It features a very unique 10 and 12 inch speaker switching feature. You can run one or both speakers for tonal options. And finally, their lab compressor pedal is a little optical compressor and is killer both in front of a guitar amp or as a piece of outboard studio gear. I use one pretty much all the time. Head on over to uniontone.com to find out more. All right, then, let's do this. Here is this month's episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. Maybe we could just start by talking a little bit about this place. And, and uh, like, I know the story of how you ended up here, uh, like the, the, the history with Ben Folds being here and, right. and the whole shitstorm that happened with, with when he was basically getting evicted, I guess. Right. And, 
and then somebody swooped in and saved the day. I'm not really clear on who that is. He's some yeah, there's one guy, Aubrey Preston, and a okay. couple of his investors. They came in and saved it. He's a real kind of you know good do good you know yeah. for uh, art world. So he's, he's just he like came a, in and, and saved it and you know overpaid I think for the building and just yeah. immediately registered it in the historic register so it can't be torn down now. So right. just a completely you know crazy thing he did for yeah. the history of Nashville. Because it was like a done deal, right? It was going to get It was, down. yeah. It was right at the wire. I don't know the exact details at the end of the whole thing, but uh, I know that, you know, um, you know, people had already started packing and it was done. Mm-hmm. And uh, he came in last minute, last day, and saved it. And, you know, now it's it's uh, in a trust, so hopefully it won't ever go away. Oh, cool. You know? Tell, like, tell me a couple secrets about this place. Like... So, I mean, it was built in 60... I think it opened in 65, and 65. the first cut, record cut here was Eddie Arnold, Make the World Go Away. They um, did all the early Waylon Jennings, like I was telling you, Daddy Walked the Line, and yeah. they did uh, Jolena, I will, I will Always Love You, Dolly Parton, in the same session, three-hour session shit. here, which is crazy to that think about crazy. that. Um, man, so much stuff. Jerry Reed, Amos Moses, mm-hmm. Elvis recorded here. Um, uh, and and was Chet the This main was Chet. Chet built the studio, yeah. yeah he, and was he, in built, he he owned the building and he built the studio and he licensed it to RCA. Oh so really? Yeah, RCA okay. records ran out of here for a long time. Yeah, yeah. Um but when did is, when did Chet own it until? I'm not sure, to be honest with you. I, I imagine the seventies. Okay. You know, maybe late seventies, seventy eight, something like that. Yeah. But um but this was his home. This was his home base and you know, they have this amazing lady who's been putting photos and t- together and kind of finding the deep history of the building. Yeah. And there's more pictures of parties than there are sessions. Really? So I think it was a big party place. <laughs> I, th- I think they just hung out and got wild, and you know, this is this is a good excuse to get together and congregate and cut up. So people always ask me, is like, are there ghosts in here? And yeah. if there are, they're pretty happy, I think. They're happy. Because you know, th- th- I think this room was a party room. There's a few legendary places like that. Like, do you know um, Bill Vorndick? Yeah, yeah. So his place, have you been to his place? No. It's a studio, it's up the mountain, um, like west of town, kind of like above, like west of Belmede. And J.J. Kale owned it. And No kidding. And they, before J.J. Kale owned it, they, it was also like a, like a speakeasy, basically. And really? Would, yeah, and they would have big parties in there and, and label schmoozes and like the whole thing. And, and so it was kind of known, I think it was particularly known because it was across the county line and you could drink like you could buy booze or something oh was it dry county here or something yeah yeah who knows but (laughs) i I think uh yeah i think this was a little fort and they probably did all kinds of wild things here yeah you can kind of feel it in the walls Uh uh-huh uh-huh so obviously it was built for chet's kind of modern take on country music with the huge yeah you know uh, yeah i think what happened was they discovered you can make a lot of money when you put strings with country music and popped it up a little bit. Yeah. The country politan sound emerged really next door RC Studio B and over at Quonset Hut yeah. down the way and uh, they started really making money and when they really made the money they had to build a room that could capacitate strings, choir, yeah. band and singer all in one room and that's yeah. why this place was built so large I think. And do you think there was that was going on here daily? Like was there a symphony? Like was there an orchestra for RCA? Uh, I don't know if there was one for RCA, but I'm I'm certain there was strings on about yeah. everything from yeah, yeah. you know early '60s to, to to mid '60s, you know even late right. '60s. So yeah, it, it, well, that smooth pop sound everybody wanted, I think. You yeah, know? man. What was the process of you coming in here? Like, how did that all shake down exactly? I just got really lucky. The the guy Aubrey Preston I was telling you about, he saved yeah. the building. Yeah. He uh, he called me and 
Ben Folds was moving to New York. I think he had uh, kids in college there. He wanted to be near his family. Yeah. And um, he said the room was coming available, and he I think they're going to make it a commercial studio. And I was like, I'll rent it. And he's like, come on, man. I was like, no, no, no I'll rent it. And, he, and I think he called me two or three times that day to make sure I wasn't, you know, out of my mind. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I think that's that's kind of how it happened. And then he was super happy to have me here, and it's been a great partnership and friendship. And, you know, we've done a lot of stuff aside from, you know, this is the studio I work out of pretty much exclusively and yeah. here all the time. But uh, Aubrey's does things for music and healing and he's oh, got all okay. kinds of other things going on so he always brings people by and yeah. tries to center everything right. with with the studio so right before you sort of took it over had you worked in this room before i did i, I worked here a couple times i did a, a thing with sturgill uh simpson here and then uh chris stapled and i did travel here because uh we thought it was gonna be torn down and we wanted to you know be here before oh, so that was before you yeah it was before yeah oh, so okay. we'd worked here and made that record yeah and uh, just fell in love with the place, you know. It was such a sad thing to see it go away, and it was just I never did I think while we were making that record, you know, that later on we'd kind of be here permanently. permanently. Well, yeah. at least permanently for a while, yeah. So what struck you about this room in particular, like when you walked in, like aside from the, can't, the sheer size? Yeah, of it. I think the size of it, number one. But you know, it's daunting. Like it just feels classic. It feels yeah. It feels like an old record, and you know, I, I study old records like textbooks. I just love them. And, right. You know, people always say how vinyl is the thing, and I don't think I don't think vinyl is the reason why people love it. The medium, I think, it's because when vinyl records were made, they were made in proper studios with you know expert engineers and the best players in the world, and you know, and humans interacting in one room together. Yeah. And um, most places don't have the ability to have a full band tracking in one room without using headphones and you know, the acoustics is to support it, and this room does, and that's, mm -hmm. that's the thing that blows me away about it all the time, is that I can get away with n not using headphones. I can get away with having everybody in one room. I don't have to put people in booths and yeah. isolate them and make them feel, you know, yeah. like yeah. they're recording a record. It's more like totally. a gigantic band rehearsal here most of the time, you know? I've been doing that, too, a fair amount with records that I do, and trying to do no headphones when I can, mostly from... Actually, you always get the best vocal performances. Oh man, it's always. crazy. It's always. so different. And they sound more hi-fi. Yeah. You know, you hear those old records and you can hear the room, you can hear the yeah. the, the bleed and, and um, it's a pleasing thing. And I think new records, it's hot and cold. And it's yeah. very, yeah. I don't know, insular comparatively to those old ones. Do you have to tame the room at all? No. You don't? No. I, again, this is some crazy... It's some mojo, crazy Ninja science that shit. happened here. I have no idea <laughs> what... I couldn't even describe... Uh, is it all original? Like, are the walls yeah, all yeah. original material? Yeah, it is. It's like it's a been time painted, capsule. It's painted, but it's, it's pretty much a time capsule, you know? Wow. Which is, which is wild. And I think people were smarter than we are now, you know, 50 <laughs> yeah. years ago, 60 years ago. I'm pretty they sure they were. They kept it simple, right? Well, they didn't have, yeah, they didn't have iPhones to play on all day, so they right. actually had to use their brains for other things, so. <laughs> Was there any gear here when you moved in, or you had to move all I your I bought shit the in? console from Ben. He'd, oh, okay. he'd had it in here for maybe 10 years prior and I bought it from him. And it was that, a, the API. Yeah, the API. It was yeah. an easy transition, but there's a, there's a reason why I bought it. Um, I was I had a console I was going to put in at the house. Yeah. and um, Your house. My house. Yeah. It was at my house. I was going to move it over here. And I was talking to Chris Stapleton and, and uh, 
he's asked me what I'm going to do, and I said, I'm going to move my console from the house. He's like, well, you got you got to get that console that's there. And I said, why? He's like, because it has red, white, and blue EQs. <laughs> it was okay. because, you know, we'd had a good record with Traveler. We just didn't want to change anything, you know. Didn't wanna... So this was the console that this you was, used on, yeah. on that record? Yeah, so, okay, it was, so, it was, okay. so it was more, you know. Was Ben looking to part with it, or did he have to, like... I think so. Yeah, I mean, he was. You know, I I think he had a studio for a long time and get back to his you know solo career and things like that. I I don't really know the the the, the truth on that one. You know, as far as, but but it's a big thing to move a big console. It is. Yeah. So I think it's easier to sell it than move it. And for me, it was easier to buy it than move one in. So. Right. Right. Um, Tell me a bit about your engineering history. Um, Had you worked on API consoles before? Many times, yeah. I, I've had an API before. I oh, always, yeah, you've owned one. Yeah, I've okay. owned, I've owned, I've always liked them. So, I, I first of all, I don't consider myself a great engineer. I just, yeah, yeah. I like things that are really easy, you know. Right. And an API is pretty easy. It's yeah. you know, it's just, it's, you got a mic preamp and you got an EQ with three bands, and that's yeah, pretty much as far as it goes. And yeah, that's about as complex as I want of a right. desk, you know. And the, the how how technical do you want to get on this stuff? We can get fairly technical. Okay. I don't. I don't really yeah. like getting burdened with like too much gear talk. Yeah, cool, cool. I didn't know. I didn't know. know if it was centric that way, but uh, oh, we can totally. No, we can no, go down it's, just, that it, it's pretty limited. It's a pretty <laughs> limited desk, and that's yeah. why it, it it works for me because it's you know a little bit a little bit point and shoot, you know. Yeah, and it makes you look good. So <laughs> I like things that help me cheat. Right, you know? right. When you start a new project in here, like I don't know, say um, the recent. Is Bill Record? Did you do that in here? Yeah. Okay. So when you start a new project and gear rolls in and the band comes in and sets up their shit, and um, tell me a little bit about your process, like as a producer, like how do you, how involved do you like to get in the in that whole side of things of of like how the drums are tuned and sound and and how involved do you get in in like amp selection and things like pretty, that. Pretty involved. With people like Jason Isbell, though, they just sound good through everything. Right. I mean, when he plays guitar, it just sounds good. He's a killer he, guitar player. He's insane. Yeah. And, and he could plug into any amp in the room and it's going to sound amazing. I don't really influence that a lot uh-huh. with him, but for sure I make sure we got the right drum set because it's really, somebody told me a long time ago, it doesn't happen in the control room, the sound. It happens in the live room. So we take plenty of time to make sure we got the right sources to work from. And, mm-hmm. Then usually when you pull mics up and you have great musicians like the guys in his band, it just sounds like a record. So we try mm-hmm. to always make it sound like a record as we're tracking it, yeah. and not you know let's fix it later. Right. We always try to go for the initial sound to get it right there. Mm-hmm. So anyway, with with some other some other people, I get really you know deep into it and you know change everything to get the right sound. Mm-hmm. But with people like Jason who are so pro, it's like he could show up and we could pick any amp in the room and it'll be great. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, so him less less. You know, him in particular, him is, in particular right. is less involved because yeah. it just sounds good. And all his whole the time. band, same kind of thing. Yeah, they yeah, they're they're amazing players. The whole band is great and great yeah. vibe. But we always kind of yeah, most bands, if I can get away with it, we set up kind of in a circle and yeah, you have instant eye contact. And I'm usually always in the room with the band. Okay, um, do you, you stay in the room during the tracking? Yeah, I used to not. Because you play, quite yeah, a bit, I play, right? I play on a lot of the records, but I'll play. Uh, Jimmy Miller is one of my heroes that yeah. produced my favorite era of Rolling Stones records. Right. And Jimmy was a drummer, and he would kind of get in there and play percussion or whatever it took to kind of get the the groove of the band. I'm with you, man. Yeah. I always play guitar. Yeah, and I do that yeah. more. I play my guitar more as a shaker than mm-hmm. I do um, as an actual part most of the time. You know. Yeah. And if it's do not that, it, it might play a shaker. Yeah. Be focused really you, on. You the feel like you can get. You can. You, you feel like you know. You know when you got the take when you're in the room. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And so, 
if for me it's a cheat and uh, and uh, sometimes I'll, I'll play guitar on something as a shaker like I said and erase it or sometimes I'll play percussion on a record going down and then just erase it just to kind of yeah. you know I just want the band to kind of all lock in and have a central you know place to kind of lock to you know right yeah it's it's really a cheat and i stole it all from jimmy miller because he's, he's a genius yeah yeah is, is he still around i don't think so okay is he american or british? he's american no he's from new york okay yeah. i don't know much about that he started guy. out in the british band circuit though i think he started out with traffic and rolling stones and oh he was in traffic no 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 producing, oh, producing traffic. Yeah. yeah okay wow um, or Spencer Davis Group, but you know what? I'm going to get this wrong and sound like an idiot. I think it's Spencer <laughs> Davis Group, yeah. One of those Steve Winwood Yeah, things. one of them. Yeah. Um, so this is a gigantic room. How do you determine, like, you could easily put drums 80 feet away from other people. Like, how do you determine where things are going to go? Well, it's crazy about this room. It's a big room, but no matter where you put things, it kind of sound the same. Mm -hmm. I think, um, again, it was some super smarter than us technology that built the place. Mm-hmm. And so it's really just line of sight more than anything else, you know. Okay. Just make sure everybody can see each other really well, and and we usually wind up setting up really close, even though it's a big room. Oh yeah. Half of it's wasted, so. Right. Right. You know. Um, and do you have to baffle it off or anything like that, or do you? Uh, a little it, bit, a little yeah. bit sometimes, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes we just uh -huh. let it roll. You yeah. know, it just depends on how confident the artist is in the song lyrically. Right. If it's if it's something where we've got the lyrics and we're just trying to get the take, I won't even use any separation at all. Uh -huh. If it's something where we know something's got to be written to the song or a part may be changed, then I'll isolate right. the singer. Yeah, you know. But yeah. most of the time, it's so even on those like the Isbell records, the Isbell records stuff. is all in one room. You know, drums right. are in a booth. No headphones on those. Uh, kind of there's records, headphones or? in those. Yeah, yeah. But but that's just you know because we like to listen really loud. You know, yeah. whatever it is, but. It's everyone else in the room except for the drummer, and um, you know there's lots of bleed. There's guitar amps bleeding uh -huh. in the vocal mic, and yeah. you know, yeah. um, fiddle in the room and everything as well. So it's right. It's, it's pretty. And there's a lot of room on those records, and and I want to talk to you about that John Prine record. I assume you did that here. Yeah, yeah. Because that that the room, just the vibe of that record sounds so cool. Well, a lot of that record is all in one room. Everybody, even the drummer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You can tell. Uh, but yeah, John, you know. We just made it seem like it was more of a hang than it was making an album, and I uh -huh. think we did it really fast, like super fast. I want to say three or four days. Yeah, three or four days. The whole track. You probably were done. can't get a guy like that to commit to a much more than that, right? He would. He likes hanging out in the studio. He does. Eh? He enjoys it. Yeah, but mm -hmm. but it's the hang that he enjoys. You know, I, I right. learned a lot from him. He he's he's really the coolest human being on the planet. I think you know he shows up with a Christmas tree and. You know, I just had a little hang with him in Ireland. I was playing a festival in Ireland, and my friend Fats plays in his band. Oh, yeah, yeah, no Fats. So, yeah, yeah, we have really well. And, uh, so we were hanging out, and there was John Prime, and it was, yeah. He's magical, isn't he? He is magical. Yeah, he, yeah. like I said, he carries a Christmas tree all year round because he just likes the feeling of Christmas, you know. <laughs> And, uh, and you know, every day he has his, his special drink, his handsome Johnny's, he calls it, a vodka and ginger ale, yeah. a splash of lime. Uh -huh. uh, he has those, and, you know, Gets I ask him, like, what do you, yeah, what do you want to eat? And he's like, KFC every day, which I love, you know. <laughs> and then he has oysters for dinner at 10 o'clock. It's like he's got the best life in, the, in the world. So, yeah. yeah, he enjoys the hang, you know. Yeah, everyone was in one room together, and there's lots of bleed on that album, and it's very much not preciously made, you know. Right. Tell me about like how that came together. Like obviously somebody digs what you do and thinks you'd make a great record for John Prime, but like 
how does it happen for you like as far as um, determining well I, I, I guess you only have to think about doing it for about two and a half seconds and then you know you're gonna do it but how do you start off with a project like that and determine how it's gonna sound and or do you just kind of like well, I thought the, the sound up. was easy because I wanted to sound like John Prine. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. If you listen to the record, it's him and his acoustic guitar are really loud. Yep. And everybody else is supporting that. You know, I wanted right. him to be the focus. It wasn't about the surrounding elements. It was really just about getting to John Prine and his lyrics and staying out of the way and his yep. really identifiable guitar playing. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I, I got a call about you know working with him, and of course I said yes in two seconds. And, mm -hmm. Him and I got on the phone and we talked about, you know, people I love and people he loves. And I was talking about Sam Phillips and the way Sam Phillips works. Sam Phillips, from what I was told, walked in the studio every day with no game plan. He knew who the artist was, but then he'd come out with a whole lot of shaking going on or whatever it was. He was always just freewheeling and just going for it. And, and I, I work very much the same. And when I heard that about Sam Phillips, I'm like, you know, validated my craziness because I don't like planning anything. I really, yeah. I detest it. And uh, I, and John's like, yeah, Sam, produce one of my albums. That's and right, yeah. And we were seen. talking about my other hero is, uh, my other hero is, uh, you know, Phil Spector. And I was talking mm -hmm. about Phil Spector, you know, the way he works and, and his kind of feel and things like that. He's like, oh, yeah, I wrote songs with Phil Spector. I work with Phil Spector. So everybody yeah. I talked to, he knew and he, uh, <laughs> Yeah, so everybody I talked about, it was always, he, he'd already worked with them, and he was, you know, very well-versed. So uh -huh. I really had nothing to say that <laughs> impressed him very right. much. But, right. but um, no, we just got along immediately, uh -huh. you know, and, and I think, you know, he was doing the cool stuff we were trying to do way before we thought about it. So Exactly, yeah. Were you a fan of his earlier records? Yeah, I mean, lyrically, yeah, I'd, I'd work with uh, Jason Isbell, who's one of my favorite lyricists on the planet, and... Uh -huh. and uh, and I think he got me into Prime. Uh -huh. I think that's when I started to pay attention, you know, and, and I, I know he's, you know, a fan and influenced and a friend of Prime's. And then I just fell hook on a sinker into it, you know what I mean? But yeah, it's yeah. a deep well, too. It's a can, deep well. I'm still, yeah. I'm still digging in that well, you know, <laughs> still learning it. I mean, when I was a kid, I, I, I grew up um, Pentecostal, and so we didn't have a lot of secular records in our house. Oh, okay. And, yeah. and, and when we did have records, it was the worst records of all time. It was like, you know, Andy Griffiths sings the Beatles or something. It was never, it was never <laughs> it was like, never the, even the it Beatles was Kmart records. Yeah, it was never even like the real records. So oh I think, God. you know, I think I probably learned more about music in my 20s than I ever did when I was growing up, you know? Really? So, yeah. Was there, were you in a musical household at all? Like, no, not okay. at all. My, my, my grandmother was a Pentecostal minister and she was an incredible singer and she was a professional published songwriter oh. for you know christian music and and uh she'd had songs published and then my grandfather on my dad's side he was a bluegrass musician so they were all musical oh, okay. uh, but my parents themselves weren't you know right right you were playing drums and like drums first right that was yeah yeah so how'd playing, you get into that i started playing drums at four i don't know i just i think i was just possessed with it i never had a game plan or a backup plan for yeah. for anything you know do your parents like that <laughs> my mom, my mom was supportive. She yeah. would take me to lessons and uh -huh. you know, got me a drum kit early. And when I wanted to play bass, you know, I took bass lessons. And when I wanted okay. to play guitar, I took guitar lessons. So uh, she was really supportive. And I, I think my dad was more, you know, he knew his grand, his father, who was a musician, had struggled, mm -hmm. you know, and and had a fourth grade education and you know worked on a farm his whole life. And he thought that was probably what music was really like, you know. So, right. Right. So I think he was. 
trying to make me get an education and go to college and I just yeah. couldn't do good in school. I was never, I was terrible at it. Right. Terrible student. I just don't, I still to this day don't, I can't do math. I, uh -huh. I can barely spell. You'll never get an email from me because I, I don't want to <laughs> sound like an idiot when I, when I, when you, when I send them out. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I was just possessed with it. I don't think I ever had a backup plan. Uh -huh. And, you know, if it didn't so work out. And so were you playing in bands like super yeah. young? Yeah. Yeah. So I had started having bands, you know, probably from fifth grade on and played in okay. school band and, you know, just, just possessed with it all the time. I wish there was another interest I had. You know, I've tried <laughs> other things like motorcycles or something, and I'll get into that for five minutes and I'll just get out of it. And right. it's back to eBay and gear, you know? <laughs> so I mean, I really don't have any hobbies. My hobby is music, you know? Yeah. So I should try podcasting. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't know how to operate this technology you got. Me and technology don't get along. I, really? I couldn't figure that out. There's no way I could figure out how to hook that microphone to there and then download whatever you got to download and then upload whatever you got to upload. I wouldn't be able to figure that out. But you, that can't, like you have to be underestimating your own abilities no, because you no. understand signal flow. You understand Yeah, but it took a long time. <laughs> yeah. But I still don't quite get it, you know. It's like, <laughs> like I don't. There's a lot of things that are mysteries to me. But what I what I think I um, suck at is technology. What I think I'm good at is hearing things and knowing yeah. that that guitar sounds good or that drum set sounds good. So mm -hmm. when I pull up faders, it kind of sounds good because the room helps you cheat, and then yeah. the player is obviously number one. Mm -hmm. Good players and good sources, they, they help you cheat a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. But I, if I had to do it with technology alone, I, I think I would just be a basket case. You know? <laughs> I mean, I really have so much trouble with technology, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe it. But tape's easy. Yeah, so, so you're mostly running tape here? I go tape first, and then I'll store it you know, in, yeah. in Pro Tools, uh -huh. keep it digital after that. Just because you know, nobody's got $30,000 of tape budget the way they did back in the right. 80s. You know? yeah. So where did your engineering know-how come from then? Like if I, I went to recording classes. Oh, you did? Okay. Um, and, but I think I just like, learned from, I started being a session musician in Atlanta. Oh. And, um, and I worked with some people there, and I would watch how they worked. Yeah. And I started to pick it up you know, That's a little how I bit. That's I did too. Yeah, and then and then when I was in a band, we had producers and engineers working with our band, and I'd just yeah. pick their brain and ask them questions. So yeah. I'm a complete audible learner. I have to hear things and I have to see things. Yeah. So yeah. I think watching other people, I pretty much stole a lot of people's tricks. <laughs> you know, uh, what was your band called in? in it was Atlanta? called the Tender Idols. And you guys were like you were signed and had. A, <coughs> yeah, thing yeah, and... I got I signed really young and yeah. had my first taste with the music business and signing a bad deal and signing a bad really? publishing deal and getting screwed and. Oh my god! So that's what eventually led me to making records is because, <coughs> you know, I was existing off a twenty-five dollar a day per diem, right. you know, and just uh, I'd met my wife, you know, my girlfriend then and and. Uh, I wanted to be able to afford an apartment, you know, properly yeah. and be able to, you know, have see her and not be on the road. And that's why I started producing records because okay. I always enjoyed the studio part more right. than being on the road. I always enjoyed that more than, than anything else about being in a band. I never cared about being in front of a, you know, audience or cameras or anything like that. Really? So it, was, it was all, yeah, yeah, it was always to me about the creation part. That was always mm -hmm. the most, most interesting part of being in a band. So it allowed me okay. to stay home and, you know, uh, see her more and how were your early um studio experiences with your band like being produced by other people and <clears throat> when when i was working with the band I, we watched producers work and when i watched them work i was like man this is kind of a life you know I, like, I can do this you know <laughs> because it you know people we work with some of them were 
you had some comments, you know, maybe mm -hmm. you should change this chord here. But for the most part, it was more engineering production. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I felt like I was the opposite. I, the engineering to me, I care about it a lot, but it's completely secondary to the arrangement, to the right. composition part. So, You're coming at it from more of a Yeah, musical. I was always, yeah. you know, composition based and, and creatively based. So I felt like I could add more value, you know, yeah. and, and, and it's like being in a different band all the time. You know, you get to come in yeah. and you can be in a ska band one week and you can be in a reggae band, you can be in a country band, you can be right. a rock band. And I have a lot of different music I love. So yeah. it was it was great. You didn't have to kind of, you didn't have to stay in one lane. Yeah. And that's why I like production too. But definitely when I watch other people work, I was like, man, it's like, I think I could add more. Yeah. I think I could do something more, you right. know? Because yeah. I studied, you know, been obviously a big fan of George Martin and people like that. Uh -huh. I feel like somebody like him, he came and he played on the records and right. he added arrangement to the records and gave them ideas and, and explored. And uh, I was Yeah, he was actually sitting that. there with pencil and paper. Yeah, right, yeah. For, yeah, yeah. And not only that, but he played on the records. Yeah. He arranged scores, yeah. you know? So so I, I thought that was a fun job. So. Uh -huh. so you mentioned Jimmy Miller, you mentioned George Martin. Who else were people that you were kind of... Glenn Johns, I love the Glenn sound Jones, of his records. Yeah. You know, I think. What are your favorites? Well, his? Zeppelin One is probably my favorite rock and roll record of uh -huh. all time, sonically. You yeah. know, it just it feels great. Everything about that record feels great. But he did all the great. You know, he did Stones and he did the Who, and yeah, he he's the sound of rock and roll to me. Yeah, I think he makes the best sounding rock and roll records ever made. And there's a record called White Mansions that he he produced. Uh, a friend of mine, Paul Kennelly, wrote <coughs> that has a concept record that has Waylon Jennings and Jesse Coulter and. And Eric Clapton's band and that record to me, it just that's it, man. That's yeah. everything about that record is hi-fi and uh -huh. brings you in. And it's a record that made me fall in love with country music, you know, via rock yeah, and roll okay. almost, you know. Yeah, you were basically like a rock and roll kid. Like you weren't definitely you weren't into country at all as you were growing up. No, but we we didn't have we never had Waylon Jennings records. We never had mm -hmm. you know Johnny Paycheck or. Yeah, you know. Yeah, that doesn't go far in the Jerry kind of Reed, Costal Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we had Barbara Mandrell and Kenny Rogers. You right. know, that was about the only things that kind of seeped through. And so I didn't identify with that. I appreciate it now, but I didn't identify with it growing up because yeah. it wasn't, didn't have any angst to it. You know what I mean? Uh -huh. I always liked music that had an edge to it. Right. And I didn't realize that country had that same edge, you know, uh -huh. until I discovered, you know, kind of Waylon and, you know, all that stuff later. So. Um, what was it that um, turned you on to that stuff then? I moved from Atlanta to Los Angeles to produce rock records. And when I got out there, uh, a friend of mine introduced me to Shooter Jennings. Yeah. Uh, and and he's, he, you know, he said, you know, you're from the South, he's from the South, you guys get along. And we just met and him and I talked about ministry and Skinny Puppy and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we go and make a country record. And so <laughs> that record was my education in country music. of like, you know, hearing these records for the first time, these yeah. great country records and just being, you know, understanding so, but the how rock did, and roll how did spirit you, there. How did you end up producing his record? Like, I think we just got along real well. Really? And we did a couple songs. Yeah. And then from that couple songs, we wound up... He's about your age, yeah, I guess, yeah, right? He's yeah, he's a couple years younger than me. Okay. Four years younger than me, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so... We just hit it off. We wound up making a record and it got picked up by Universal South and we had our first uh, hit record, this guy, this song called Fourth of July. Uh -huh. um, and his record did real well out of the gate. And through that, uh, he introduced me to Jamie Johnson and Jamie and I worked together on a couple of his records that did well. Yeah. And then it just kind of... What was your role on those records? I'm producer. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then uh, he introduced me to Sturgill. And so he was always like a connector, you know? So Still while you were in L.A.? 
Yeah. Okay. I, actually, I met Sturgill when I, right when I moved here, but I met Jamie Johnson when I was in LA. So, what was your life in LA like, like uh, as a as a sort of a well, at that point, you were like a fledgling producer. You weren't yeah. super established. Um, was it hard to make a living? And like, where were you working out of? I, I worked out of my house, okay, <laughs> like everybody else does. And yeah. then I had a, I had a, a couple studios. One at this place, Paramount Recording, a little room, and another place at uh, Hollywood Sound was an old studio there. I had a room there that I kind of ran out. But you know, I was doing rock records and 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 uh, indie records and. What like were some of the other? Records. What were some of the bands you were working with at that point? This band called Rival Sons, who I still work with, rock yeah. band. <clears throat> I've done their records, and then uh, this band called The Shies. It's like a lot of kind of you know indie stuff, and um, yeah, the country thing just kept calling. You know, I kept, kept getting yeah. Head. Those are yeah. the ones that worked you know, uh-huh. every time. You know. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And so eventually I, I started working in Nashville. I came the first time with Shooter to record a second record, some here. And so he brought you here? He brought me work. here, yeah. Where'd you record that? Uh, we recorded Quad okay, because yeah. we had read Neil Young did Harvest there. Right. So we wanted to be there anywhere. Anybody, we loved work. We yeah. tried to go scout out that rooms and work. Yeah, I came here the first time then and, and I kept coming back to do little things here and there and just uh-huh. fell in love with the city because I think this is the mecca of music for the world now you know this is it feels like it this is the alamo you know yeah, man. it feels like everybody i mean you moved here from canada for the same reason it feels yeah. like the music's here and there's yeah. always discovery here yeah. so and um yeah now i'm making country records so what year did you actually move here like 20 2011 11 okay. yeah. yeah end of two th- pretty much 2012 right before so when you started making records here in in nashville um like did you feel like this was a place that you would be based out of for a while or i i'd i'd grown homesick for the south oh yeah pretty bad i mean i'm, I'm from the south and my whole family's in georgia and i just kind of missed the identity of it all you know mm-hmm. and when i moved to la i never thought i was coming back south to be honest with you really yeah i just you know i was fascinated with anything else that was new you know mm-hmm. like i grew up in savannah georgia and we don't we have a beach but we don't have mountains so seeing mountains and a beach all it just feel like it feels like yeah. disneyland you know yeah, to me yeah. everything felt like you know shiny and you know different and exotic so i liked all that about la but um i told jason this jason isbel this story before but i'd heard one of the bands i was working with played the drive-by trucker song outfit uh-huh. that Jason had written, and the lyrics on that song just resonated like crazy with me. It just all made before sense. you knew Jason. Before I knew Jason, yeah, yeah. that's when I was kind of you know possessed with trying to find a way to work with him because yeah. lyrically it just summed up everything about being from the southeast and what it 
felt like and the lifestyle and yeah. family and, and manners and all that. And that's when I really started getting homesick and I had a daughter and, you know, I started you know, romanticizing about growing up and kind yeah. of being back here with her. So right. eventually it led to coming here. Tell me a little bit about like working with people like of your peer age, basically. So like St Sturgill and Chris Stapleton and uh, Jason Isbell. Like they kind of get lumped together into one thing, which I think is I kind think of funny very different. because they're totally yeah, very wildly different. different. I think yeah, too. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, how do you? I don't know any of those guys, but I would imagine they're wildly different personalities. And I think I think the one thing that combines them is honesty. I think they're making honest records. Yeah, you know that's yeah. probably the, the the tie that binds on that one. Mm -hmm. uh, and they all, I don't. I think everybody's got blinders up when we go in the studio with any yeah. of those guys we're not trying to make a hit radio song we're not trying to make a hit record we're not trying to you know reinvent the wheel and and come yeah. up with that new fresh sound it's just you know it's right. just being themselves and i think yeah. that's probably another common thing they all have together but you know each of those artists are very very different you know very yeah. different very different artists so sturgill we, when i was working with him we never really talked about how things were going to sound. Did you do two records with yeah, him? Yeah, I did. I yeah. did two records with him. But it was it was more just, you know, get in a room and start experimenting and... and yeah, the, and so the first one is, I, I hesitate to say traditional, but it's definitely more traditional. Well, I think I think he wanted to make a country record. Right. He'd been in kind of a punk, you know, based with country-influenced bands. So yeah. I think he wanted to make a country record. So um, I called uh, a friend of mine, Robbie Turner, who's a killer steel player. Yeah, yeah. To come play on it, he played bass and he played uh, he played steel on it, and uh, we had Hargis Pig Robbins, who was yeah. one of the A Team guys who played yeah. on all the old country records. Come in, it sounds traditional because we bought the traditional guys in, so we bought those traditional guys on it, and it yeah. sounds like traditional because we bought the. So he didn't have a band at that point. No, he didn't really have a band at that point at all. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after we'd done that record, um, he started putting his band together. Okay. And then the next record was his band, you know, right, the Meta Modern. Yeah, record. and 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 myself, we all got in a room, in my house is probably as big as a coffee table, all together with no headphones, and made that record. And oh, that wasn't done here. No, the, oh, the okay. Meta Modern was done in my house. Really? Yeah, that's an incredible sounding record. Oh man, that's me engineering and not know what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a bit about like how like what how did you. How was it set up? Like, was it all just in in like in your living room or something? Well, or? no. I had a, there's a studio in the house that I had, um, but it's oh, a okay. really really tiny studio, and it's just you know, Sturgill was right next to the drums, you know, playing guitar and singing, and mm -hmm. and I was playing acoustic on the other side, and the bass player was kind of right next to me, and then his guitar player mm -hmm. off to the left, and it's just you know, no headphones, mm -hmm. all in the room. Were you experimenting with sounds? Because it's pretty experimental. Like there's a lot um, of that. Well, I think it, the experimenting happened just, I was trying to make him laugh, and he was trying to make me laugh. That's probably where the main experimenting came out. Really? Because you know, uh, there's a lot of tape-based right. experimenting. A lot of flanging. And, yeah, a lot of yeah. flanging and phasing and right. reverse stuff. And, right. And there's, you know, it, it was really just trying to crack each other up. You know, I had him in the back of the room with an echoplex and a microphone saying crazy things, and I had two faders. And I was muting him like if it was an EDM record, you know. <laughs> All doing it by hand as he's saying crazy things and just swashing around. And, oh you know, and, uh, you know, if a song didn't work and, and, the front way I'd reverse it and we'd cut to that you know yeah all of a sudden there was something you know just it was really a kind of a big uh, 
you know, this is going to ruin our careers album. Really? Yeah, I, I remember when impression. we fi- yeah, I remember when we finished it, we're playing it back and we are laughing. We're so mm-hmm. giggling about how crazy well, pretty psychedelic yeah how, how crazy some of it was and just thinking like well that was fun i guess that'll be that'll <laughs> that, be the end of that's it that's the end know? of that yeah that's the end of that little did you know yeah and i think you know the other artists i work with um the last isbel record we had everybody in you know one room which which we've always kind of done for the most mm-hmm. part um do you do you change much from song to song or do you yeah once you're set up you're good to go like yeah i do change song to song because i don't okay. i mean Meta modern, not so much because it was such a tiny room. You had no right. room to move. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, we changed drum kits and we changed guitars and uh-huh. amps, things like that. But that the one of the fun things about making uh, the Nashville Sound album, uh, the Isbel record, is there's a song called "If We Were Vampires." It's yeah. such a beautiful song, and yeah. I was trying to. I think I was trying to make him laugh too. Uh, I'd read, I'd seen this documentary about 10CC making I'm Not In Love mm-hmm. and they recorded a bunch of Oz on tape and different tracks and then they would use the console to manipulate the chords they would turn up, you know, if I was an A and okay. one was a G, yeah. they would turn up the two faders to make a chord or right. whatever it was they were doing this exercise so I tried it with guitar amps with him so his, him and his guitar tech set up multiple uh, little stations stations of guitar yeah. where the guitar was tuned to a note and then delay pedals and reverb and feeding back and it was set on the amp so I set them all around really? the studio yeah and then I had Jason ride them live yeah. after we had the basic tracks so they're all just going they're all, they're all going in one note the whole time and he was changing <laughs> the faders to make the chords happen behind it really yeah and then I had Amanda uh, singing through this crazy delay pedal yeah. reverb pedal that is the solo on that it's her she's vocally soloing on that you know so it just things like that to kind of it just makes a day fun but then it winds uh-huh. up being something totally cool and and i couldn't predict that it would work yeah that's not the kind of thing you can plan yeah. for really although you must have had it must have been a plan you must have had that but i think it's it kind of a chuckle in my head you know like right. maybe this will work you know okay. but i didn't i didn't know it would work until it did and then you know we're all having the best day after it started coming together and yeah. everybody's smiling and you know and yeah. then it winds up being one of my favorite songs right. I've ever been in the studio with you know yeah yeah um, what's your process like with say a record like that like do you do you try and get one song complete per day kind of thing or like how do you you know like, it all work? depends it, it, sometimes you know I've done records where the artist is on tour and mm-hmm. we'll just go in and cut a couple songs we'll just complete them and right. the next leg they have off we'll, we'll do more and kind of patch it all together but generally, I like to get the basics of the whole band. I think it's like different mindsets. I think when mm-hmm. you have the band tracking and the, the kind of the basic arrangement of the song, yeah. um, it's a different headspace and getting experimental with overdubs. So I like right. to get the, the the beds of the the bands together, and yeah. then after that's done, then we, you know, clear clear, clear the room, clear everything out, and yeah. kind of start fresh with you know oh, cool. that's, overdub process. You know, yeah. but usually I always go for vocals live. I always cut to always. the singer. Yeah. Yeah. Because I don't think people sing as good uh, when you overdub right. vocals. Like, uh, for instance, if you're in the room singing with a band, if you get loud, the band's going to get loud with you. If you yeah. get quiet, the band will get quiet. That doesn't happen later in right, the process. And yeah. then secondly, I think when you're doing an entire band of everybody tracking together, there's no real attention a lot of times or monofocus on just the singer. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if you overdub a vocal, all of a sudden, everyone in the room is watching the singer, yeah. like trying to, you know, like you know, get it right. And then I think the singer becomes very 
self-aware and yeah. kind of doesn't emote the same way. I can never get vocals as good. So as a producer, to. are they aware that no. they're... Okay. No way. <laughs> that, would, that, would, that would mess the whole process up. I usually, yeah, I usually say, you know, let's just play see it like we're going to play it and see how it goes. Yeah. Uh -huh. And... Um, but how often do they come in and go like, yeah, it's pretty good, but I could do it better? And like, All do you have the time. To, and, and do you have and to talk I, yeah, about it? I fault artists for that. Like, no, really? man, it's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm usually right. <laughs> how, do you, know, they, how do you win that argument? Like, that's a tough one to win. Like, Well, you know, listen, it's the artist's record. They always win. Their, their yeah. decision is the ultimate decision, and that decides what the record is like. But I think, I think when everybody's connecting to it, I'll, or I'll let them have other passes. Mm -hmm. And then I'll show them the right. energy difference, and then usually that that kind of clears it up. Yeah, okay, yeah. But it's usually always better when they're singing live. Yeah, always. It, through the process, do you change their like vocal mics and stuff like that? Yeah, definitely. You do you experiment with yeah. that and try different things? Like I heard with Isbel, you use like a Cole's forty thirty eight or something. Is that that's the best sound ever on him? Uh -huh. I've tried a bunch a bunch of mics with him, and yeah. it's, the Cole's is always the winner. How do you not blow them out? Well. You can put a pop filter in front of it. It's really the only okay. thing that really blow them out is just wind and right. um, so yeah. just a pop filter. So you just discovered that by fluke. That worked really well. With with this, I was working with engineer Mark Patacia, and I yeah. think I would just gotten really into Coles uh -huh. at the time, and so I didn't have a huge mic collection at the time. And I okay. think we just put it up for for fun, and it just sounded yeah. like it sounded like you were in the room with them. So yeah, there was a Coles here and a Coles, you know, below it. One up and down, one for the acoustic, one for the vocal. Oh, one, Something one about guitar the too, figure yeah. of eight pattern on a ribbon yeah. mic kind of nulls the acoustic down below it. And the acoustic I've done that before. It works amazing. It actually. works amazing. Yeah. And to me, it's the best sound. Yeah. But it doesn't work with everybody. I've tried it with a lot of other artists. It doesn't work at all. So. Right. Right. So it's, it's, everyone's so different. There's no magic bullets of gear, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah you have yeah, the best sure. microphone in the world on one person, it sounds like the worst piece of shit on another one, you know? Yeah. So what would make you change, say, his vocal setup from song to song? Like, Well, he's pretty much Coles on oh, everything. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I've used 67s and things like that on him with luck, but Coles just sounds like the truth to him. So I don't really change vocal mm -hmm. mics on him very okay. much. What about somebody like Stapleton? Stapleton... Uh, you gotta got, be kind of careful with him, I guess. He's got a, such a massive voice. Like. Well, Vance Powell engineered the Stapleton Records, and he's a tremendous engineer. So okay. he also loves the Coles. Yeah. But he also loves the U forty seven. Right. So we, not we, Vance does all the work. Um, he he puts a Coles and a U forty seven. So there's oh, always okay. two mics yeah. for exactly what you're saying. Cause yeah. He's got such a big voice. It's it's nice to. It sounds amazing when you capture it with two microphones. You get yeah. the warmth of the coals yeah. and you get the fidelity. I've done that before too with like a like a RCA forty four and a forty seven or something. Yeah, and then end up using actually them using them both because yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what which we seems do. ridiculous. But it's it's <laughs> it's ridiculous. But it's not ridiculous when you don't have to do anything to the vocal sound. Yeah. after it goes down, it sounds finished. So yeah. you know, it's, you would yeah. probably work harder later to get it to sit the same way it does. Totally. You know, together. But yeah, we use two mics on him. So w when you work with a guy like Vance Powell, do you just let him do his thing? Or yeah, that's why, of, that's why he came. That's why he's here. Yeah, yeah. that's why he's here. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's one of my heroes as an engineer. And he's he amazing. Comes yeah. down and, and, he, and when he's here, I, you know, I don't really have to pay attention to the engineering at all because right. he's got it covered. You yeah. Know? On like Isbel's last record, was he, did he engineer that or did you engineer it? No, I engineered it. And uh, a friend of mine, Matt Ross Bang, engineered it as well. Okay, so when you're out playing, he's... Yeah, yeah, Matt had gotten the sound for me, but I'll be okay. there in the room for the yeah. initial sounds, yeah. and then when I jump out here, Matt will take over. Right, okay. And um, 
And then I'll mix the records, you know. So you mix them all? I mix a lot of the records. Yeah. You know, I also have other people mix records too. Vance mixes some records. And mm -hmm. What makes guy, you go to somebody else or what does it depend on I have on the a love-hate thing with mixing. Like, I think it's fun for about, if I can't get a mix together in 30 minutes, I'm over it. I really? Just, yeah. 30 yeah. minutes? Yeah, I just don't like mixing enough uh -huh. to do it. Yeah. Um, but if I feel like a record's tracked well and it just is yeah. coming up, I'll, I like to mix it. I like to mix the easy stuff and I'll give <laughs> the hard stuff to people who are smarter than me. If there's too many tracks, I, I'm out. I can't handle it. My brain doesn't work for it. You know. It's One of my favorite records of all time is uh, John Hammond, Wicked Grin. Do you know that uh -huh. record? It's Tom Waits produced it and it's all Tom Waits songs, but John Hammond's doing it with kind of Mavis Staples band. Um, wow. It's Check great. It it, yeah, it's like 15 years old. It's killer. But he, but the Tom gave the engineer 10 hours to mix the entire record. So awesome. Yeah, I think Band on the Run was mixed that way too. Really? Yeah, the Wings record because uh, the other wow, short, it does not sound like no. That that's one of my favorite sounding albums of all time. Holy. But I think they had you know schedule conflicts and things like that because he'd lost his record and got ripped off in Nigeria. So they had to recut it and they had a schedule oh, conflict shit. and so they just had to get it done. Access Bold is love. Uh -huh. um, Jimmy apparently took the mixes they'd been working on them for like two weeks and left them in a cab on the way to a party and they were gone and so they remixed side A in like six hours or something God. <laughs> yeah I, I don't think it takes a long time to make an album I think I think good records come together you know it's the yeah. ones when the performance is not great that are, that are really hard to mix I think you mm -hmm. know so, so when a, an artist comes to you and you want to make a record um, like somebody that's got some backing and some dough behind them um how do you determine how much time to allot to the record I mean, if i can get away with it i like to make records in two weeks mm -hmm. and uh, mixed mixed everything. everything yeah yeah i think they sound better like that I'd, i think the yeah, most totally. fun records i've ever made and the most of the most successful ones were made in two to three weeks yeah anything beyond that i think people are just over it yeah. They're tired of it. They're tired of hearing Or the they're making song. a different record by the time they... Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and uh, also, you just forget what you're doing. You forget, yeah. oh, oh, yeah, that song. You just, you just, just, It just becomes a blur. Yeah. For me, at least. I don't have right. a short attention span. I mean, I don't have a long attention span. So, um, two weeks, two to three weeks. That's, mm -hmm. the, that's the maximum time I like making records. Mm -hmm. I've made records with longer time. And, and when you calculate the, the hours we spent, goofing off to actually work and it's probably you know balances out the same anyway so yeah so when you're mixing here are you totally by yourself do you like that like working totally no excited? i like having people around i can't mm -hmm. stand mixing totally by myself mm -hmm. do you bring the artist in and stuff or? Yeah, yeah as much as i can if they're in town or they're in tour i'll have them here mm -hmm. and i and i usually have an you know an assistant with me yeah. as well yeah and it's really kind of bouncing stuff off and having people help you know because it's yeah. a lot of the stuff i do um winds up being you know, analog bass at the mix stage. Right. You know, re-taping things and tape mm -hmm. flanging and delays and, you know, running things back through analog compressors and... and How do you just, do your flanging and, and delays and stuff? Like, do you have a... Like, are you using, like, a like a full-tone There's an old Studer uh, C37 I have in there. Okay. And then I have a couple other tape machines, and some of them have very speed, some of them okay. don't. So you have but machines I, specifically yeah. for... for no, nah, I just have one machine. I, I have this... J37 old studer that I yeah. recycle stuff through. Okay. If I can't get a vocal to sit properly, I'll rerun it back through the studer. That's all I do, and then all of a sudden it just works. <laughs> this is the kind of engineering I do. It's like, well, <laughs> run it through that. Let's see what happens. And yeah. and uh, and for some reason it just works. It's glue, man. Yeah, it's it's glue, but it's also I think it's just 
you know, obviously harmonic distortion, but there's something about the warble of a tape machine that somehow settles a pitchy vocal at the same time, you know? Yeah, That's so weird. you'll fire a vocal track onto the tape machine back onto... Back into Pro Tools, back into Pro and Tools then I can use the same machine and very speed it and right. warble the tape as another track. and then Like physically with your finger? Physically you with finger, yeah, okay, and yeah. you put it back in, and all of a sudden yeah. you've got the ADT or... You know, right. If you do it slow, you've got flanging, flanging and phasing and all that yeah. too. So, oh, you know, stupid stuff. Or I'll use the. Uh, you so know, you do a lot of that. Do a lot of that, and I'll do a lot of like you know, use a tape machine to pre-delay the plate to mm -hmm. make it sit. You know, the Sturgill record, you can hear that all over it. It's the pre-delay of the tape machine to right. the the plate. It just yeah. sound, makes the vocal sound huge and expansive. Or, you know, um, I do a lot of feedback delay stuff where. Yeah. You know, send the delay as off the, the vocal to the delay, and then bring the delay back into the delay track itself. Feed it back into itself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That stuff. All the old there. stuff. It's, and you're pretty liberal with with effects too, like but like the classic effects, like yeah. the plate reverbs and the. I don't get the new ones. I don't get the new. I don't get. I, I couldn't find my way around H three thousand if you wanted me to. Oh yeah, yeah. Like yeah. it's just I think from the eighties on, it's just very, really, really complicated right. to me. I just see numbers. It's complicated, yeah. And numbers to me don't make any sense. So yeah, that's like why those lexicon I, remote. Units yeah, I should make a piece of gear called now. Dyslexicon because that's pretty much what I am. <laughs> uh, so you've got a? Do you have a few plates here you can choose from? Yeah, the, there's one that was originally here. And I think that that okay. big EMT was from next door RCAB originally. This one here. Yeah. yeah. And then a little echo plate that I've had for a long time. The black one. Yeah. That's it. What is that? Echo plate. That's echo plate. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's smaller than I thought they were. I haven't actually seen one of those. Yeah, I, I love that thing. Uh, do you have more than one one forty, or is that the? No, I've only got one. Yeah. But you can do different things to kind of change the sound of it yeah. with you know how you EQ to sure. it and how you yeah. return yeah. and EQ on the return. Yeah. So, but I'm 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 super nerdy about that kind of stuff. I mean, I really studied as much as I could the the heroes of mine and how they yeah. were working it, and you know, people, uh, Roy Hiley, who did the Great Columbia Thirty Street New York records that did Bridge Over Troubled Water, the Simon Garfunkel album. Mm -hmm. That's one of the best reverb records of all time, and I try Intense. to study what he did, you know, mm -hmm. and figure out how. Like, well, there's a lot of articles about okay. it. You yeah. know, there's a great documentary about the making of that album too. But oh really? Yeah, he was a master. Bill Porter was the engineer who worked at RCA Studio B next door. Yeah. Did all the great Elvis stuff early yeah. on and I'm a big fan of him and read everything I can read about him and yeah. how he made records and his, his thought process. So. Uh -huh. Do you do any uh, remiking in this room at all? I have, yeah. There's there's records where we've, you know, recorded uh, you know, other place. I had to go another place. You know, we mm -hmm. were recording in LA or something and came back here and re re-amped it through the room to kind of get the sound of the room. Like the mix or, or like the snare drum specifically? Yeah, different, like all, all yeah. the above, you yeah. know? Just try to tie it back together with stuff right. that was cut here. Yeah, you know? I noticed on the Isbell record, the recent one, some of the vocal effects are like pretty wet and platey, while some of them seem completely dry. Too. I think we did a bunch of them dry. Okay, yeah. And I think it was intentional. Yeah, was, that was a thing. But, yeah, because I think, you know, lyrics are everything, you know, and yeah. I think it was trying to make you connect with the narrative of, of his story. It was Just more like reading right, a book than it right was, you know, trying to scream at you, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, I love those dry records, too, though. Yeah. I'm going through a dry phase right now. Are you? I'm, I, I'm, I've been so into <laughs> reverb for a long time. Now I'm going through, you know, a phase where I'm starting to mute every effect, you know? Yeah, I find like, I don't know if you, you probably do experiment a lot with like distance of mics for depth rather than yeah. 
than um, reverb and effects and stuff like that. You know, you can get a lot of mileage out of putting. Oh yeah. Uh, Especially uh, in a good room. Yeah, yeah. You know? It's not like you have a shortage of yeah. space you can back up on. Here. This room's really weird though, because you'll distant mic, you know, and then it still sounds like you're right in front of it. Really? Yeah, because I think it was, you know, it meant for impact. You know, it's uh -huh. not a real reverby kind of room. Yeah, it's not. It's remarkably well. Dead isn't the right word, but controlled. It's, it's controlled. Yeah. yeah. What happens in here when you're away? Like you mentioned that you're on tour with Stapleton right now. The ghost play. <laughs> Really? I don't know. It's just quiet. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. it's quiet. You know, yeah. you don't rent it out as a commercial facility. I don't. I've let I've let a couple of people that I'm friends with come in here and yeah. record, um, but it's really just set up for all my junk to hang out more than anything else. Right. You know? Where did the Prime record like when when somebody comes in for that kind of a record? Do you just kind of use the middle of the room as the focal point? Yeah, or? and everybody's yeah. literally you know it's probably the size of this area rug to yeah. each other. You know, you got this big room, but they're all yeah compacted just the so first I think it's the first song on that record the snare is it's like that classic 70s thing where the snare is actually as loud as the vocal maybe or louder even right. like it's big and fat sounding but I'm guessing he wasn't playing it very loud no no so it was the drummer his drummer Kenny is amazing and yeah yeah he got it you know right yeah it's it's it, the reason it sounds huge is because he's not hitting it hard right That's exactly why yeah yeah. Start to hit drums hard. Everything sounds small. You know? <laughs> That's the biggest. Yeah, the hitting book, cymbals man. hard, hitting drums hard. It just collapses the sound yeah. of drums, and uh, and I think the drum sound on that really is just a kick in the overhead. You know, they're super simple. Like yeah. they're there's not. It's not like it's. A big I know we have a snare mic, and, mm -hmm. and and it sounds like there's a close mic on the snare. Possibly barely. Okay. But I think predominantly it's the overhead doing all the work on that. Mono just seems to make more sense to me. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's I, again, it's it's a it's a with that kind of stuff. It's it's all about um, an engineer I work with, Matt Rossbank. We both like it simple. Yeah, it's more mics, more problems. Totally. You know? yeah. Then you start to have to do math, and I, I can't do it. So, <laughs> yeah, a couple mics, it sounds huge, and a good yeah. drummer, and a good drum. You must have a good mic selection here now, though, right? I love microphones. I think yeah. that's the most important part of uh, you know recording. Yeah is a microphone that's the thing that that's really the translation between the artist and mm -hmm. the listener so yeah. yeah i concentrate on that pretty heavily mm -hmm. and and you manage to avoid getting too hung up on mic shootouts and spending too much time i do it all the time you do yeah, yeah. i still do and it, and it can be like you know whatever x great mic i'll i'll listen to 10 of them before i pick one you mm -hmm. know and then if i hear another one that comes for sale that's better than mine i'll sell my other one oh yeah keep going yeah zero but you are a, a bit of a gear I love the gear. I just don't know how to use it. So, uh, to me, it's like it's furniture or art. You know, some of the yeah. old stuff is just art. It's beautiful to look at, and it, sure and it enhances the vibe in the room. You know, yeah. just be in there and you see this great old, you know, beautiful vintage mic in front of the singer. I imagine it makes them sing better. You know, yeah. or you see, you know, an old guitar, an old amp. It makes people play different. So yeah, it's, totally. it's it's really kind of you know, yeah, uh, using that to kind of help the vibe of the room too. Right. Can you just tell me a little bit about um, guitar sounds for you? Because that's something that's like really in your face and awesome on a lot of the records we've been talking about. And um, I'm sure it varies from record to record and, and player to player, of course. But um, do you have any particular ways that you like to work on getting either or both acoustic and electric sounds? Yeah. Uh, I used to look at pictures online and mm -hmm. pictures in books of my favorite records being made if I could find, yeah. you know, Glenn Johnson's studio or... Mm -hmm. 
Jeff Emmerich or any of these heroes of mine, if I could find any pictures of the Beatles in the studio. Yeah, I noticed you're there. <laughs> they're recording the Beatles book. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good cheat. That, I learned <laughs> yeah. a lot. I, couldn't, too, I wouldn't man. have been able to make that, that Metamodern record without that book. Really? That's all. Everything in that book is, you know, everything on that record is stolen from that book, I think. Do you use, like, U67s on the amps and stuff? I do, all the time. Yeah. Yeah, that record right. doesn't have any U67s, but, okay. but I do use U6, U67s on the amps all the time. Yeah. You know, France Powell taught me a trick a long time ago of U67 straight into the line input of an Eve module. Oh. Because it, it pads the mic down and it sounds, it's finished. You pull it up and it sounds finished. Really? Yeah. Um, but no, the, all the figure of eight stuff of being able to like yeah. have everybody in one room and not have it get phasy and weird and yeah. have isolation. I use a lot of mics in that position. And that's hmm. stolen. Interesting. That's stolen directly from the Beatles book. Okay. There. But anyway, I'd watch these people, my heroes, and I'd look at pictures of how things were mic'd and try to copy it, not really mm -hmm. knowing why, and then mm -hmm. trying to figure it out later. Right. And it just seemed like every time I look at old pictures of the records I really loved, everything was so simple. Totally. You know, you look yeah. at anything from the 90s on, it's just, you know, 50 mics on the drums and <laughs> so much processing going on. Yeah. And I'm just not technical, and I'm not good enough for it. So it's a nightmare trying to. And deal I don't with like that. the sound of those records as much as I right. like the sound of a Beatles drum sound. So I'd look at pictures of how Ringo's thing was done, and um, I actually got to talk to Jeff Emmerich, the Beatles engineer, uh, and ask him questions about it. And, you you know, did? It's, yeah, it's all. It's he all. He was so young. What's that? He was so young. Yeah, he was a teenager, 19 yeah. or something. Not even. I think he was 17 when yeah, he did. Yeah, he was a kid. But I asked him questions, you know, about how you did this and that, and he told me it was just mono, you know, like three right. mics and the one compressor, and that was it. And, and so, no panning. Sorry, well, we were talking about guitars, but drums, I'll, I'll go one track on drums a lot, mm -hmm. you know, it just it sounds better. One, one track with With multiple mics, mics right? yeah, blended down, yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. And I like the sound of that. There's something like, about how numerous mics feed into one channel in a console. Yeah, it sounds different when you spread them out. Totally. I don't know why. Well, but it does. And guitars is really simple. It's probably U67 on the guitar amp. Or I've been back into 57s again. Yeah, and I went away from that because it's the thing you start with. But I've been back into it because something about yeah. dynamic mics yeah. just sit better, you uh -huh. know, a lot. So I kind of been back into that. But everything is really simple, man. Mm -hmm. You know, I heard Glenn Johns used to, you know, when he heard amp, he kind of walk around with his head and find a spot that sounded good and just put a mic there. Mm -hmm. This makes so much sense. Yeah. So. Um, what sort of distance do you tend to mic an amp from? Well, it depends on the, the kind of vibe I'm going for the album. Yeah. I mean, if it's like a big rock and roll record, a lot of times I'll distance mic only to get it to sound yeah. bigger. You mm -hmm. know, If I want it to sound in your face, I'll go close. But yeah. it really depends on the artist. You know. What about acoustic guitars? That's another thing on your records that I love the sound of. Like, uh, um, It's different. You know, it could be a Coles. Yeah. It could be a 77. It could be, you know... Do you find you have to... If they're finger-picking or something, do you have to crank a coal so much that it gets kind of wiggy? Well, with a really good finished tube mic pre, it's uh, a perfect fidelity right. match. You find like an old, uh, I have these modified Ampex 351s. And oh, yeah? They sound like a big condenser mic with a 77, just because something about the really the impedance match and the, yeah. the era is matching the era, and it, sounds like a, it sounds like a record, it sounds finished. So oh, I don't have cool. to do any of that with those. Yeah. Um, but yeah, 67, 47, C12, yeah. you know, all the basics, it's pretty simple, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. But it, somebody told me a trick a while ago, and I stole it from them, where getting acoustic guitar sound, you give the guitar player, you know, he has headphones on, there's a mic, just have him move around until he gets in a place on the microphone, yeah. he likes it. Mm -hmm. 
then it sounds finished. Yeah. As opposed to continually running out there and trying to position it where you want it. Make the guy happy. Yeah, well, he's going to be happy. Here's it. He's like, oh, that's it. And it stays there. You mark it and you're done, you know? Yeah. yeah. That was a good cheat. <laughs> totally. Yeah. What's happening next for you? Like, I, you mentioned you're on tour with Stapleton. Is that going on for a long time at this point? To the, to the end of the year, yeah. Till November. Wow. Yeah. Like, are you away solidly in that? Or is it all, Pretty like, much, you know, like uh, Thursday to Sunday every yeah, week. Yeah. Um, but it's a blast, you know, hanging out with buddies and goofing off. Yeah. And, and uh, getting to play in a, a band you, for a minute and then I'll get yeah. my fill of it and then I'll be back in the studio. So, so what's your role in the band? Like, I haven't seen you with the band. Like, what do you do in the... I play guitar. Yeah. Electric, acoustic, both. whatever. Yeah. 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 Both, so... Yeah, you're it's playing, fun. You're playing stadiums mostly and, like, big-ass... Yeah, which is yeah. bizarre. You know? Yeah, which, man, it's, it's great. Kinda, I, think, I think every time we go out to these big places, we just look at each other and go, like, can you believe this? <laughs> this doesn't feel real, you know? <laughs> None of it feels real. It's, yeah. it's, it's totally, you know... Unicorn Land, you know. <laughs> uh, are you doing another record with him at some point? I think so. I think we're yeah. going to wind up doing one, yeah. another one coming up. So, uh -huh. how do you like working with somebody like at various points in their career? Like you've done that with a number of people now that I notice. Um, I guess Sturgill went off and did his own yeah. last record, but like with Stapleton and with Jason Isbell, you've, you've sort of ushered them through a number of records now. Do you well, I think I think they're like family though. Right. I mean, they're like you know great friends and yeah. maybe. Maybe we just, you know, when we get in here, it's it's kind of, you don't have to catch up yeah. on stuff. You kind of, you know, everyone's can just create. Everyone's easy. comfortable and yeah. it's easy, yeah. And what's not to like about working in here? And I think I think you just know that, you know, we have such a trust between us that mm -hmm. they know that I'm going to work hard and 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 uh, and vice versa, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, well, shit, man. Thanks. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for being yeah, here. Yeah, sorry to take up so much time. It's just no problem. all really interesting, and I, I love all the all the details, and you've made such great records. I just Thanks, man. To get into it, you know? I'm happy to do it any time, man. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. That was my conversation with Dave Cobb. I hope you enjoyed it. I sure did. That was right there in RCA Studio A. I love that place. I want to have that place one day. Maybe when I grow up, I can be in that place. Anyway... Thank you so much. Uh, we'll be back next month for another episode. See you then. Thank you for listening, everybody. The Music Makers and Soul Shakers podcast was recorded in Nashville, Tennessee at the Hen House Studio. You can visit us online at www.stevedawson.ca. As always, I would like to thank Jeremy Holmes in Vancouver, BC for his help with research, and we'll see you next month for another gripping episode of Music Makers and Soul Shakers. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com/style for free shipping and 365-day returns.